My name is Ilan Heimoth, and I'm a partner and the department head of the Profit Participation Group at GHJ. Welcome to our podcast on predictions on how streamers may share their success with talent, which will include a discussion with two distinguished guests and friends, including Peter Deckham, a veteran transactional attorney who represents high-profile talent and rights holders in the film and television industry, as well as Ken Roydlick who handles both transactional and litigation matters for many years with a focus on resolving complex business, entertainment, and IP disputes. I'd like to welcome you both. Uh, so we're going to get going. Peter, I'm going to get you to kick this off from a macro standpoint, looking at the industry at the 30,000 feet. What is your diagnosis of the streaming business today in terms of subscriber growth and financial condition? And then what challenges are they facing right now economically as we look for the future? Well, as you can see from a lot of layoffs and changes in management around the business, uh, the streaming model that, that was anticipated never took place. Um, what you have is, for the first time, Netflix faced competition. Back in April, their share value dropped 72%. It's come back from there. Disney's been not having a particularly good time with direct-to-consumer situations. So at the end of the day, the industry is going to reconfigure. It's, it's a lot of pressure on that. And part of what we do for a living is to try to figure out where they're going. Currently, the streaming industry serves neither the employer studio network nor the talent. The problem is that they had made a lot of assumptions about what people would do and how they would subscribe, and it didn't pan out that way. Also, they play fast and loose with subscription numbers. For example, you have 50 million subscribers in India, they say they just are included in an overall, look at all the Disney platforms and how well they've done, but those subscribers pay a buck a month for cricket. So you're really, the metrics, what's really missing from the business is transparency. And I, I feel bad in some ways for the streamers because they're basically scream, we got to reduce our costs. we got to reduce our costs. And of course, where do those costs come from? Oh, talent, we're paying talent too much. No, you're actually not. What you did is you took away the incentive from talent by paying fixed bonuses, and you took away the upside that would have been generated if, in fact, a show were you know, successful that we used to see in, in yesteryear. So we all can help each other. The streamers would do well to be able to reduce some of these upfront costs, and talent would be a lot happier if they believed with passion that if they scored a major success, they would be rewarded. So it's a two-way street and it benefits everybody. One of the issues we're going to see in terms of the battle lines is the collective bargaining agreements, you know, DGA, SAG, WGA, DGA goes first, uh, the late spring, early summer, those, those agreements are over in June. And the DGA for the first time in years when they've had these negotiations has said 3% raises are never are not gonna happen here. We're seeing inflation, we're seeing paradigm shifts, we're seeing lack of transparency, and we're facing that. Obviously, subscriber growth has been plunging because for the first time, Netflix is facing competition. Head-to-head -head competition is, is just a reality. And what you have when you have this competition is, well, what do we do now? How do we do it? We'll build subscribers by having a hybrid model of some advertising. And so we now have this advertising tier. And they're telling the, the advertisers, we're selling you demographics, but we're not telling you what shows they're going in. Well, that transparency isn't going to hold very, you know, advertisers just don't like that. So we're going to see some changes. And I think part of this is to figure out what can we change for talent? 
and what can we change for the streamers? Just to follow on, on that, Wall Street is looking at all of these companies and he's seeing significant losses. I mean, you're looking hundreds of millions to billions of dollars of, of losses. And I'm trying to get a sense as we look to the coming year or two years, how does a streaming company able to generate the revenues they need to generate while maintaining costs? I mean, I think I've heard you say, I've heard you say layoffs is, is one element, but what else can they possibly do to keep that well, balance between revenue and cost? It's, fa it's, it's a fascinating reality. One of the problems with streamers, they made an assumption that if we create an original product, which is very expensive because you're competing with features you now on the big screen, you're, you're competing with a lot of activities. If, if we basically go into this business and we finance product, we don't want to give that product or share it with anybody else. Therein lies the biggest mistake of streamers. You cannot do that because what they've effectively done is cut off the aftermarket long tail revenues for their library assets. No matter how iconic, no matter how good they are, they're not getting any money for it. They use everybody used to syndicate, I think was a word that was commonly used, their aftermarket assets on non-exclusive basis to a bunch of platforms. Now, when they cling to those, that revenue stream is toast. And if all of these streamers are engaged in the same nefarious activity, of holding on to iconic library value. And by the way, subscribers don't subscribe to Netflix or Disney or anyone else to get the vast library. They're looking for the next cool stuff. So they're not actually, it doesn't serve them in any way, shape or form. Additionally, if everybody does it at the same time, that puts pressure on the streamers to create more original programming, which creates additional expenses, which they don't need. For the first time in 2021, for example, Netflix created original programming as half of their content. So let's get real. Let's go back to the old models. Let's not care if our competitors get non-exclusive rights to our library product. And let's focus on common sense. Thank you, Peter. So moving on to Ken, compared to past deal making, how does streaming, and I think we've heard from Peter and the way they, they handle things, how does streaming affect the talent deal making right now? And, and perhaps another question to follow, uh, what changes do you see in these deal negotiations with the talent as we look to the future, perhaps based on some of Peter's commentary already? Well, there's there's two major problems I see. The first one is this the lack of transparency. I mean, we're, we're sitting here negotiating, and it usually plays out in the bonus areas because in the old days, it was pretty easy to just tie in bonuses to box office as reported in the Daily Variety or uh, or box office moat, you know, there was there was an objective way that we did this. And yes, there was always, as you know, there were always accounting issues that took place on the backside between definitions of gross and net and all. But at least in terms of bonuses, you could peg them to a box office with an objective standard. All of a sudden, when the pandemic started and everything was going into streaming, there was this, this big hole and there was no knowledge. And so they started putting in these alternative bonus paragraphs to try and placate the artists, but they would be defined in ways that were difficult for anybody to put their hands around because it was a very amorphous thing. Like, what, what does it mean? How many days, for instance, did it have to be released on the streaming after the initial theatrical, when there was a theatrical, for it to be considered a streaming release versus a theatrical release? Because the streaming cannibalizes the box office. So then your box office-related bonuses obviously don't happen as frequently because this money's going into streaming, and then you don't know where the money is in streaming. 
So what you end up doing was getting a smaller bonus that said, if we put it out on streaming during this window, then you're going to get X. It was just like a Band-Aid. And of course, Brian Lord famously for Scarlett Johansson said, you know, not so fast. And they made exception. I mean, we, I don't know exactly what that was. It's, it was done in Hush Hush. But you can be sure that what's going to be coming here is the same demand for transparency that Peter was discussing in all the deal making. And I think the unions are going to have a lot to say about it. We've been hearing rumblings about the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild. I think next year is going to be a really rough and tumble year for the business, frankly. I think a strike is, is almost inevitable in one place or another. And I think ultimately the streamers are going to have to put their, their cards on the table with transparency. And the, you know the, this is very similar to what we experienced in the music business, right? The music business being the canary in the coal mine in this area, because at the beginning there wasn't any transparency. And then eventually the consumers, who are always the king, pushed us into in the music business into a subscription model which may very well be what people are, going, are wanting to do in the film area too. They're even buying subscriptions now for a monthly pass to be able to go to the cinema to see their favorite films. And ultimately, there's going to be a pot of money, as we always used to say, this is now going back 22 years. It's a pot of money and we got to whack it up. And we got to whack it up fairly between the participants, between the streaming services. And that's where this has to go, inevitably has to go. And it could end up being a net positive, but I think, as Peter can well describe, it's going to be very, very painful getting from here to there. It's painful and it's necessary. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember when HBO was uh, the nascent cable service, and they refused to tell you how many subscribers they had. They paid you bonuses based on uh, license fees based on theatrical uh, box office. And I just figured, you know, for those of us who are into like S-curve analysis, these MBAs were predicting a straight line up for an indefinite period in the future, which is not the way I learned about S-curve analysis. There's a curve at the top and then it ultimately goes into oblivion. But eventually, in order to defend themselves against people saying, I want more, I want more, I want more, HBO finally revealed its subscriber base and that transparency occurred. I don't know what the lightning strike is going to be on the, uh, you know, the streamers. Is it going to be advertisers saying, no, we want to see details? Is it the guilds that are going to say, hey, you're going to have to pay based on X, Y, and Z metrics? Who's going to break? And someone's going to break. It has to happen. Um, and it's a question. I think the guilds and the advertisers combined are going to put an amazing pressure on the streamers. I also, Alan, I wanted to just raise one point because it just came to my mind. There has not been a whole lot of talk about piracy, you know, above the board here. And yet, anecdotally, I have a feeling that a lot of people with a higher level of computer skills than the three of us do are watching whatever movie they want when they want it. And it's not necessarily ringing up. You know, this notion of, of a Netflix account being shared across nine people. Now, there's a lot of that, too. There are still certain imperfections in this market that we haven't really seen close. And the whole, the point in, again, going back to the music analogy was they didn't buy Napster. It's been historically found that that was a mistake, that perhaps we could have gotten the music business faster to health had they just embraced Napster when it was there. But be that as it may, it's the consumer that ultimately pushed the business to where it needed to go because the consumer wanted to get all the music all the time whenever they wanted it. And there wasn't this theatrical component to it because the art wasn't being created by people who want their films to be seen in a cinema, which I understand. We've all seen movies in the cinema and on the biggest screen at home, and it's just not the same experience. 
the communal experience, the size of the screen, the 3D, whatever. But the consumers are going to want subscription. They've already got a taste of it. Right now, there's probably too many services. You know, we're at this point now, and maybe Peter can talk about cable, where all of a sudden your bill is just full of all these, these services and there's going to be consolidation. And I think if the government doesn't play some role in it, there's mischief. Well, the theatrical marketplace has not fallen as far as it's going to fall. There are 300 malls right now that are scheduled for closure in the United States, and they're anchored by exhibitors. It seems that unless you have something that adds in that communal experience that Ken talked about, comedies or horror films, which sitting in a room with people sharing that experience makes a difference, or where it's a theatrical reality that really makes a big difference. You'll notice the IMAX theaters are not watching much drop-off. They're holding up, they're holding firm. So there's a market out there. But I think the fundamental issue that Ken's pointing out is that we are used to being in an industry where senior executives at major corporations are telling consumers what they should do. And that does not work. Mm -hmm. So let me let me shift gears because I and I wanted to start by uh, sharing with you a recent conversation I had with a producer who said to me that. It is actually better for us to get less upfront money, but at the same time, share the ultimate success of, of the content that this producer is going to pull together. It's human nature. It, it actually creates better content when somebody is actually feeling motivated to create something amazing that they can share with the consumer, knowing that if it really breaks uh, and becomes a popular show or popular film, they're actually going to have an equitable share of that net profit. So this is something that I just literally heard from any of the firms. I think Peter, you started off talking about that at the beginning of our of our podcast, and that leads me to Jeremy Zimmer's, uh, I guess, call to action uh, that was published in the Hollywood Reporter recently. And obviously, those of you who don't know, uh, Jeremy is with UTA, prominent agency here in town, Los Angeles, and he said that. He believes uh, streamers need to develop, quote, an increased level of compensation for those creating outside value. And it's essentially the same, the same commentary that uh, coming directly from a producer who I met with. And, and what I wanted to see if the two of you can share is this, you know, again, these are just looking at our crystal ball and also sharing your views. What could those streamers do to respond to that call uh, to action is how could they perhaps as specific as we would like it to be or as general as we'd like it to be is how could they share mechanically or uh, I guess mathematically through a waterfall, if even using the traditional maker definition, how could they share the success with the talent? So maybe Peter, you can kick this off and then- I, I think this uh, is an error. First of all, you have to find out what's missing. If I yep. used to work on 22 episodes a year, then I would make um, executive producer, writers, whatever we are, talent, I would get X per show. But the new streaming model is down to eight to 13 episodes. In and of itself, that's missing income. So that's put pressure on people to get more money per production hour than they used to get. But now we got to look at the, at the upside. What is it that's missing? And it's a very simple question. What equals gross? It's a very interesting, you know, and, and what, what do we do with that number once we've got it? Well, you know, it's clear that these streamers are, for the most part, public companies, and they do publish what they get, do in an aggregate basis, and they do have accountants, 
And just in case you were wondering how the unions and guilds operate where they get residuals, residuals are not calculated so much on a per program basis, but they're calculated on the basis of how big the streamer is. So you get residuals based on, you know, Netflix will pay, pay more than a small than Hulu simply because it has more subscribers. There are more people in that universe. There's more revenue in that universe, et cetera. So the question is, how can we define gross? And I, I thought about this a while. I said, there's only one real metric, and that is people watching their programming on the streamer. That's whether it's viewing hours, maybe there's a minimum threshold. So if someone turns it on for four or five minutes, that doesn't qualify. But if someone watches, let's say, 50% of the show, and we create a metric in which we aggregate how much money is coming into the streamers, how much money of that is attributable to their streaming operations. Remember, they do other things too, video games, they have merchandising, they have a lot of stuff. How much comes in? And then you basically need a neutral party. It could be an independent accounting firm, maybe vetted by the guilds. It basically creates a metric on an annualized or quarterly basis for each streamer to figure out what an average viewing hour generates in terms of income to that particular streamer. So now you have gross. Gross is simply what, what that show generates, that particular production, not all production, but that produ particular production. You can then take that aggregated one number, what a viewing hour gross is, and you can now put that in the formulas that we've used traditionally, whether they're you know, adjusted gross. I don't believe in net profits either because like picking up water in a net, but some form of break-even definition you now have a definition of gross and you can work backwards. In terms of ad revenues, you have a defini definition of gross and you can work backwards. You can charge a distribution fee. You can split whatever the balance is in some proportion and you get an answer. Once you've answered what is gross, the rest is simply a question of manipulating and negotiating. That's well said, but I want to add two things. First of all, some of the historical deals specifically talking about the Village Roadshow situation, which is in arbitration now. Um, some of these studios made deals for, for product and they were financed by companies like Village Roadshow. They put hundreds of millions of dollars. Peter probably knows more of the details than I do. But now they found themselves in a situation where the old ways that, that money was being wrung out of the product have gone to, to pot. And now they're putting them straight out on the streamers and they're screaming because they don't, they have no idea where the money's going and it's not going back to them. And they're the ones that paid for the product. So there's, there's that going on in terms of your, your producer uh, situation. The other thing I wanted to just raise, cause we haven't said it yet. And just kind of glanced, glanced the uh, podcast is this notion again of the consumer, what the consumer wants, because I think part of the reason for the diminution of the number of episodes in a show in a season is the consumers have shown preference for binge watching. I think people, would much rather see the next ep uh, season of Ted Lasso come out all at once than to have to wait every crazy week for another hour. And they don't want that. And they're going to lose, you're going to lose people. They want to have, okay, this is my Ted Lasso weekend. And they're going to sit all Saturday watching Ted Lasso when they want to. And that that's a big change in the paradigm because it's more content than a full, a full length feature film would be. Cause you get, you know, if you add all the time, but yet it, it takes away from the old marketing thing, which was let's build it up, let's add this, and let's let's put a couple of advertisements during the week about the great episode that's about to come up. People don't want that. Uh, anecdotally, I've seen people get really frustrated by shows that have come out 
an episode at a time and you got to wait a whole week for the next episode. So it, the, it, it's, it, it's crazy. You're completely, we don't listen to consumers. We don't care about consumers. When, when we were in a theatrical driven motion picture business, we didn't even know who went to the theaters. We, you know, so what's going on now is talent and rights holders and financiers, as Ken has pointed out, are effectively financing a new business for the, the streamers and paying for their mistakes. So I understand the financial pressure Wall Street's putting on this, but ultimately we have to start with transparency and metrics, valuation metrics that make sense. Until we do that and listen to consumers, as Ken has pointed out very correctly, we must listen to consumers. Until we do that, we're going to keep reading all these stories. We're going to watch more people go through the parade of, oh, we're laying off more people. We need a new CEO. Get them out of there. They've oh, screwed no. it up. Next. <laughs> you know, Man, Let them go poison another. Send them to the IRS so we yeah. can poison the yeah. IRS. You know, another thing that um, Bears mentioned, the way the music business got, again, the canary in the coal mine, they ended up getting government intervention. And today, one of the things you hear over and over again is the frustration of all the parties with the fact that that exists. They want to end the consent decrees. They don't want the CRB. They want to have market negotiations. And the one thing we have going for us here on the on the film, television, the visual media, if you will, is they don't have that. So it behooves us to do what Peter said, to somehow set up some kind of a, of a neutral, transparent, industry-represented board that's not the government, that can make some kind of a fair situation because it's not going to work the way it is right now. And I think next year is going to be very painful. I think what we're looking looking at now is the next six months, maybe the next year of, of a lot of pain. I mean, we're at the year end now. You know, Iger's taken over. Everyone's getting fired. CNN's firing all these people and all these anchors and everything's changing. And Wall Street's taking a huge hit. And they're laying off lots of people. Well, it's going to be January 1st. And the year is going to turn and people are going to start asking for solutions. Well, I think one of the interesting things going on in parallel industries, look at Twitter. Elon Musk is destroying it. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of government regulation. But what is really fascinating about all this, I don't think we have antitrust laws in the United States, except on a sporadic basis. And you have to be an Apple or a Microsoft to get anybody even to look at the transaction. But Europe which is enforcing its uh, GDPR, its new uh, technology, digital technology uh, law, which kicks in next year, you're going to watch a complete and total difference that is going to impact us because Netflix is subject to this regulation. Disney is su subject to this kind of regulation. And does it work backwards? Also, it's strange when you talk about government regulation, it appears to be, oh, what is California doing? because California seems to lead the troop. This industry is in desperate and dire need of some form of government coordination, if nothing else, to, to exempt common sense from antitrust laws and to apply antitrust laws where consumers are harmed and consumers are getting slammed. And all I can say to that is, that's what happened in the music business. And now there's, and Elon, you're probably hearing the same thing that I'm hearing. People are really regretting that, letting the government in to begin with. It's a real difficult point you make there, Peter, as, as to whether and to what extent the government should be involved in this stuff. But for the reality, Europe is going to be involved in this stuff. Are we going to let the Europeans determine American policies or are we going to let America determine American policies, number one? Number two, the unions and guilds need to get to kick up their their game a bit 
they need to understand that in terms of industry-wide solutions, they're really the best situated. They already have an antitrust exemption. They, they're not subject to antitrust laws. There is a Norris LaGuardia Act that gives them exemption. And they are in a position to, to help open these doors. Advertisers need to start making demands. We have big ad agencies, you know, they're, they're out there, huge ad agencies. They could simply go to streamers and say, we're not going to put our clients in your ad tier unless we know what programs are in. It's, it's, it's great that you're delivering demographics, but if you're putting my content in a particular form that I find distasteful or contra contradicts my brand, I need to know that. Uh, Peter, can I can I ask you what when you say regulatory impact in Europe? What, give me, a, can you give the audience an example of what could happen and how that may be boomerang back into the United States? There's a difference in antitrust laws. The United States is about combinations. Europe is about bigness. Whether it bigness occurred organically or it occurs through combination. The United States only appears to be focusing its limited application of antitrust laws on mergers, combinations, and market, you know, ostensible manipulations and violations and price fixing. That's a complete disconnect between the two entities. We do not live in a universe where old antitrust laws, which began being passed in the 1890s, amplified again in the 1930s and late 40s, with no material changes since then, Whereas the European regulatory schema arose during the period of the internet and is dealing with the reality of, of, of communication, they don't have a First Amendment. And the First Amendment is unfortunately being used as an inappropriate shield for activities that are profoundly antisocial. So as you start looking at this, the government can say, okay, we'll allow industry groups to aggregate to deal with problems. We will sit on those uh, groups to make sure they're not sitting there and violating price fixing restrictions, et cetera. But we believe that the industry needs to grapple with these issues. And I think starting with the Motion Picture Association, Television Academy, there are lots of players out there that, that, that can sit there and do it. What this industry lacks, again, is leadership. In the old days, that leadership came from one human being, Lou Wasserman. We don't have a Lou Wasserman today, although you know, uh, Brian Lord and other people are are capable of stepping into that void and we need their leadership. Agreed. Let me actually circle back to one more item that I think uh, was discussed at the beginning. Um, we have certainly a lot of a lot of changes that have occurred in the last several years and more to come. I think we've heard that from both of you, Peter and Ken. What I'm trying to figure out is, you know, again, for me, someone who represents participants and looking at ultimates and looking for the future, how does an ultimate look like in your, in your world as you think about where we might be, say, three years from now? Could it be, if it's a motion picture, simply a window for theatrical distribution and then it goes into a box? Is there a life beyond that? Could it be a lot more diverse and complex what do you think the ultimate may look like? I think one of the future? problems you've got here is assuming that, that there is a, a set of windows. As they say in the windows business, windows can be a pain. And what we've been doing for traditionally, we've said, okay, theatrical is first. Then we have, uh, you know, home video, cable, et cetera. And we're used to thinking in terms of that rolling basis. But Ken made a huge point. And that is people like to binge. They don't like to, it's not about your controlling when I get to see something. 
I get to control when I see something and you need to make it convenient for me or I'm not going to look at it anymore. I think part of the, the reality here is it, none of those windows work. The theatrical mis- business is going to be forever changed. And until you have a metric, what is gross from streaming, if you combine theatrical with streaming, I know what the theatrical metric is. You have the ticket sales, et cetera. We, we use that and we take that and co- convert that into film rentals. I don't know how to convert what the streaming values are unless you give me a metric that defines gross in terms of viewing hours. That missing metric will change everything. And it is absolutely an essential piece. What a wonderful way to actually, uh, this is the perfect time to to end the podcast on that very important point that you just, uh, you just made Peter. So with that, I, uh, I, I wanted to close. I don't know if you have any final comments, Peter or Ken before we close. This could make you downright religious, but I'm praying for a good outcome. Yeah, Thank you for having outcome. me. Yeah, me too. I, I, I just want to say one more thing. I also think, you know, you talk about a three-year horizon. There's going to be heretofore unexpressed ways of exhibiting things. VR is coming on strong. There's a lot of new ways that and new participants that are going to be in this mix. So we really got to get this straight. And, and the other thing is the data is there. That's the thing. The data exists. They know who's coming on, how long they're coming on for, how many times they're coming on. That's the key. It's not like it's not like the data doesn't exist. If the data exists, you're going to have to share it. Yeah, and I, I have to give the streamers credit for some social changes. Like, for example, documentaries were never particularly economically valuable or funded. And, and without the streamers putting a lot of money in, in like $25 million for a documentary, so a docu-series is not uncommon. Try to get a million bucks, I mean, the old television model or any model, and it doesn't happen. So, yeah, there are values here. We're going to make compromises. There are going to be economic changes. But without that transparency, we're dead in the water. All right. Thank you both for sharing your thoughts, comments, and and even recommendations and ideas for the streamers to think about. So, again, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Ken. And thanks, everybody, for listening.